open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. By the way, we're Christians. We don't say potluck. We say pot providence. I'm sticking with it, you know. We're in our fourth week of a series called Mission Impossible. By the way, did you see a new Mission Impossible movie coming out next summer? You know, isn't, you know, Tom Cruise getting a little long in the tooth for that, you know? Anyway, we're, we're in a series called Mission Possible, and our mission is clear. Go out and make disciples. In fact, as, as Dan pointed out in his message, there's only one imperative in that Matthew 28 passage. It's make disciples. Even the going out is a gerund. So, so, um, and, and you know, uh, I've looked at this passage uh, between David and Goliath a lot. And uh, uh, the question is, when we look at this mission, how are we to do it? What is needed? What are the resources? What does God call me to do? Maybe we can see from David and Goliath some of these answers. Now, I presume you all know the story, you know, David and Goliath, David. Goliath, you know, and, you know, as I studied this, I see that in the last 25 years or so, mo most of the messages on this passage say what to do with the giants in your life. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what, maybe we can see some other lessons as we go through this passage today. So let's take a look at it carefully. But I want to start with a backstory. And I think the reason that we need a backstory is we need to see what the, um, Saul and the Israeli army should have known when they were facing their enemy. Okay, so let's go to Genesis 12:3 to start out. Some people call this the Abrahamic covenant. God says, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who, remember, remember Goliath when we get into it, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, the Israelites knew this or should have known it anyway. God had delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, remember, and drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Now the Israelites arrive at Kadesh Barnea, spies are sent into the land of Canaan to assess what is this promised land. And, they, and the, the, this land that has fruits that are magnificent. The only problem was 10 of the 12 spies see this. We entered the land you sent us to explore. And it is indeed a bountiful country, the land flowing with milk and honey. But the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants. So the, Goliath isn't the first giant they saw. The descendants of Anak. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men, the other ten, no, we can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Now, I, when I was playing college basketball, I once had a jump ball with a guy who was seven foot two. We couldn't get it going because the referee was laughing. And when, when he threw the ball up, I didn't jump. So I, I, I get an idea, you know, of looking out and seeing someone who is really big. Now, because of their fear 
and refusal to trust God for victory, that generation of Israelites died in the wilderness, remember? Now, when their children, the second generation of Israelites, were ready to possess the land, God gave them these instructions. Oh, these are so, these are, uh, I love these verses. Regarding the enemies they'll face. Look, he says, we're in Deuteronomy 1. He has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. You know, one way or another, the, the idea of don't be afraid and don't be discouraged are in the Bible 365 times. One for every day of the year. And uh, so why do you suppose the Bible says 365 times, don't be afraid? Is there a tendency maybe in us there? Deuteronomy 31. Okay, when Moses had finished giving these instructions to all the people of Israel, he said, the Lord will hand over to you the people who live there. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. And this is a promise I think we can, we, can, we can say also. He will never fail or abandon you. Can I hear an amen? Yeah, all right. Deuteronomy 31, one day. Okay, Moses called for Joshua. And as all the people, Israel watched, he said to him, Be strong and courageous. <laughs> Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will never fail you or abandon you. So now let's get to 1 Samuel. Part of the backstory. We get to chapter 4. We'll come to the first battle with the Philistines in this book of 1 Samuel. And now after a defeat by the Philistines, the Israelites, what they, they take, it reminds me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. They, they take the ark into battle with them thinking that magically... It's going to bring them victory. They're defeated. The Philistines carry off the ark as a trophy of war, saying victory over Israel and their God. Now, moving down, chapter 7, 1 Samuel. The Israelites repent of their sin and go to Mizpah to worship God. Now, when the Philistines heard of this, they obviously think that it's some movement the, about war, so they muster their troops and encircle the place. The Israelis are defenseless. But Samuel intercedes for them. God intervenes with an electrical storm that devastates the Philistine army. All this, the, the, the Israelite army should have known. In chapter 8, 1 Samuel, the Israelites demand a king to rule over them. And you know who's chosen? Saul. Saul. Saul's first battle with the Philistines comes on the heels of a victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11. Saul panics because of the size of the Philistine army and because, remember, his army is continuing to shrink, basically due to desertions. Never a good thing when you've got an army. So, disobeying God's commands, he himself offers the burnt offering rather than waiting for Samuel to come. Now, this shows Saul's fearful heart and lack of faith that we're going to see in the story of Goliath. Later, Jonathan makes a David-like move. Jonathan would be 
Saul's son, without telling anyone, he takes his armor bearer and attacks an outpost of the Philistines with these words. This is in 1 Samuel 14. We're getting closer and closer to 17. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether he has, underline this part, many warriors or only a few. So we can look at the past victories, and then we can look at God's promises. And 1 Samuel 17, 11, before we read the chapter, helps us understand the current situation. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, meaning Goliath, the big guy, they began to run away in fight, fright, fight, in fright. I knew it was one of those words. So, what does this passage that we're going to read now have for us? Number one, I think, when we go out to fight the Lord's battles, and I might say, we got to make sure that the Lord's battles. In Timothy, there's, there's a lot about fighting battles that aren't the Lord's. And I know I've got some relatives that have fought a few battles that weren't the Lord's. So when we go out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to, number one, know that God is not limited by the size of the army who fight in his name. Remember Gideon? <laughs> he had this huge army, and they keep cutting it down, cutting it down, 300, versus, versus a huge enemy army, and they win. This situation is not new. Israel simply lacks faith and lacks godly leadership here. So let's begin with the passage. Start with verses 1 to 3. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Succoth in Judah and Isaiah at, are you ready for this one? Ephes Damim. Go ahead, you try to pronounce it. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. Now, the two armies square off approximately 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem, if you've ever been to the Holy Land. On opposite sides of the Elah Valley, setting up camp on two sides of the mountain with slopes that came down in a valley down here. Now, you know, Saul didn't want to fight. The Philistines didn't want to fight either. And there, there's reasons for that. The Philistines were reluctant probably because they had steel as well as bronze in their implements of war, and they had chariots. They were up on a hill. It's very difficult for these things to work on a hill. They're much better on a, on a, on a flat plain. And so you can imagine a soldier like Goliath with all of this armor on trying to, trying to work coming down a hill. Also, if you, if you attack, you're going to attack going up a hill. The other army's going to stay there. And if you've ever been to Gettysburg, uh, you, can, you, you remember the, the importance of having the quote-unquote high ground. So the attacking army would lose a lot of people, would have heavy casualties. So... Neither of them wanted to fight. So the Philistines came up with an alternative. Now we go back, 
Verse 4, then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, remember where he's from because it's, it's sort of interesting later on, from Gath, came from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over, are you ready, nine feet tall. Now, that's the rock. He's standing next to a Chinese basketball player. The rock, I looked it up, is six foot five. If you want to know what six foot five is, Jason Wood was up here today. He's six foot five. And they have the same hairdo. Now, <laughs> so, take a look at this. This guy never made it to the MBI. Apparently, he didn't have the skills, but he had the height. He's seven foot nine, and Goliath was almost two feet taller. At least that's what the Masoretic texts say. And so it says he wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. I had to look that up. I haven't a clue what a weaver's beam is. But I, I did look it up, and it's pretty good size. The shaft of his spear was as heavy, as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Yikes. His armor bearer walked, he was no, he was no fool. He, he had an armor bearer walking in front of him with a big shield. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. So, there he is. A snapshot was taken him when he was 32 years old. There's Goliath. So, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be all, all you'll be, we'll, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him... You will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephraimite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at this time, probably younger than me, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons... Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. Now, David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and every evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. And I want to know how Angel is going to translate strutted. You tell me later. Pavonear? Pavonearse? Okay. Over a period, dandole aires could be another one. Over a period of 40 days, the Israelites became increasingly fearful and Goliath became increasingly more bold. So twice a day, morning and evening, Goliath approaches the Israelite front lines and challenges any 
Israelite warrior who had the courage to come out and fight him. As the days wear on, 40 days, Goliath becomes more arrogant, probably approaching even closer and closer to the Israelites. He's, he, he's trying to goad the Israelites into action. No one is willing to accept Goliath's challenge and face the giant. So David is introduced now, our one warrior, in verses 12 to 15, but a very different description. Nothing here is said about his stature, his strength, or his weapons. It's not the size of your army. It's the size of your God. Let's go on. 17 to 25. One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report of how they're doing. So David left the sheep with another shepherd. That's important. And set out early the next morning with the gifts. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and... They were terrified. With shouts and... I mean, they're trying to encourage each other. Shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath came out from the, the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you, have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out every day to defy Israel. The, the, the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He, he will give the man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Not a bad deal. You know? Number two, not the size of the army. When going out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to remember that God tends to choose, at least in our eyes, our eyes, the least likely candidate. You know, Goliath's a seasoned soldier, an arrogant but courageous fighter, and he was nine feet tall, the logical candidate for the Philistines. Who would be the logical candidate for, for the Israelis? Saul. Remember, he stood head and shoulders over everybody else. He was the leader. David comes into this fight in a very different way. He isn't even part of the army. He's the youngest of the eight sons. His job is to play the harp for Saul and take care of his father's sheep. Who could imagine this would be the person God chose to accept Goliath's challenge? After seeing that someone who will look after this flock of sheep. David leaves early in the morning, traveling. It was about 12 miles to the Israelite camp. David arrives just as the Israelite soldiers are leaving the camp and going toward the battle. David follows his brothers to the front lines, only to see Goliath step forward and repeat his challenge, probably for the 81st time. Twice a day, 40 days. This would be the 40, 41st. David listens to the giant's challenge and his cursing of Israel and her God. He also watches the frightened soldiers, including his brothers, draw back. Now, King Saul 
had issued a call for some volunteer to go fight Goliath and to give one of his daughters for a wife and to exempt the volunteer's family from paying taxes. And you know, I don't personally think David was motivated by these gifts. I think more he was amazed instead that such an offer had to be made at all because he would expect any true soldier of the living God based upon God's promises to jump at the chance, the, even the privilege of taking on Goliath. After all, this man is cursing the people of God. Remember Genesis 12:3. And thus God himself. David is certain that God will give the one who fights Goliath the victory. Number three. We're going to go over these at the end. When going out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to expect opposition, criticism, and judging of motives. Verse 28, when, when, when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to his men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of, few sheep? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle, judging his motives. As we look at David defeating Goliath, let's not forget the many obstacles that had to be dealt with before David could even confront this giant. First were David's circumstances. He was young. He wasn't a member of the army. And then he had to get past his older brother, Eliab. Then he had to obtain official permission to engage Goliath on the battlefield. So David is dealing with the second obstacle, his older brother. Eliab accuses David of wanting to be a spectator at the battlefront for his own entertainment. And then he accuses him of forsaking his responsibilities with respect to his father's sheep. And then he adds insult to injury by suggesting that David's task was trivial, those few sheep. Worst of all, Eliab dares to judge his younger brother's heart, accusing him of a wicked heart. You know, there's some jealousy going on here, I think, in the background. David may be, have been disappointed, maybe even distressed by his brother's words of condemnation, but they didn't stop him. Next, number four. When going out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to know who God is. We need to have our theology correct. We need to know who God is. Then David, verse 31. David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go and fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club. Any volunteers? I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Okay. I have done this to both lions and bears. Oh, my. 
And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He knew who God was. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Now, if Eliab had his way, David would have been sent home in shame. Fortunately for Israel, David is neither devastated or deterred by Eliab's rebuke. Saul summons David, and his first words are, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. By this, I think David indirectly encourages Saul not to fear. David is willing to, go, to do what Saul, you know, and, and, and no other soldier in Israel was willing to do, fight Goliath because he knew who God and his promises were. David is a man of courage, and we, we need to have courage. At this point, the only Israelite on the battlefield with courage. Where does he get it? Well, first of all, I think he gets it from his theology, his understanding of God. Also, he's a man after God's own heart. 13, 14, 16, 7. A person cannot be a man after God's own heart unless he knows the heart of God. And this comes through an understanding of God and spending time with him. More than that, David knows God not only historically, the way God delivered the Israel in the past, and theologically, but experientially. Go ahead and read some of the Psalms that David wrote. I mean, you know that he knew the heart of God. He knows the Most High God. He knows the Lord of the heavenly hosts. This young man is not a soldier. And some would say he's too young to fight. But David is placed in a circumstances where he must trust God and obey his word. And that's where we want to be. Now, I think the difference between David and every other Israelite soldier was, is that David knew who God was and walked with him. Is Goliath strong and mighty, able to destroy? Yeah, he is. But so are lions and bears. Is David worried about facing, facing Goliath? No! Because the God who rescued him from the lion and the bear will rescue him from Goliath. Does Goliath speak in a way that frightens the Israelite forces? Yes, but he does not frighten David. He knows who God is. He knows the Lord of heaven's armies. Five, when you go out to fight battles, remember, we don't need a whole lot of resources. David didn't have them. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them in a shepherd's bag. Then armed only with a shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you would come at me with a stick? See, most people had a stick in those days to ward off the dogs. Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistines, 
You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now, if you don't know the story of uh, David and Goliath, this is a spoiler alert. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. It is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling, and he hit the Philistine in the forehead. And the stone, the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell. Can you imagine a guy nine feet tall falling face down? Fell face down. David used it to kill, and then uh, David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath, and David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. <laughs> then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates. Gath? That's where Goliath was from. And the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. Now, here is a man who's arrogant, proud, and blasphemous. He challenges the Israelites to send their best warrior, and winner takes all. Now, I, I, I can just imagine what Goliath thought, his ego, when David comes forth. Here's a young man. He had no defensive armor or seemingly no defensive armor and no offensive armor. He did carry a sling, but there wasn't even a rock in it at that point. So David, only David, only God, can turn Goliath's curse inside out. Verse 47, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. David doesn't, does not wait for Goliath to come to him. Instead, he, he runs toward him, taking one of, one of the, the stones out, and he, he hits him in the one place where all of this armor wasn't, his forehead. Hit him right there, knocked him down. And David runs to Goliath, pulls out the sword, cuts off his head. Now the Philistines are paralyzed for one moment. Then they begin to realize the implications of what's just happened. And the same probably was true of the Israelite soldiers. The Philistines took off running. All courage, gone. The Israeli soldiers seize the moment and take off after the retreating army. And the bodies of the slain Philistines are strewn in the battle site right to the very gates of their own cities. Number six, the last one. When going out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to remember that both faith and lack of faith are contagious. Saul's fear, lack of faith, caught on with the, with the soldiers. They were all filled with fear. When David killed Goliath, the soldiers all of a sudden became bold. 
David's faith and courage caught on. I was watching last night uh, the Major League Baseball uh, channel, and Harold Reynolds, who played in the Major Leagues for 11 years and is part of the MLB network, he was talking about Bryce Harper. And, and I, I wrote down what he said. When your main man is, a, is in a slump, it spreads to the rest of the team. When your main man is hot, those around him get hot. It is amazing. And the same thing is here. Look, listen to the specific instructions that were given when you go out for confrontations. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to fight your enemies and you face horses and chariots and an army greater than your own, don't be afraid. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. When you prepare for battle, the priest must come forward to, the uh, to speak to the troops. He will say, listen to me, all you men of Israel. Do not be afraid as you go out to fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies and he will give you the victory. A few verses later he says, then the officers will also say, but is, is there anyone afraid or worried? If you are, you may go home before you frighten anyone else. That fright is contagious. David's faith was contagious. Saul's fear and lack of faith were contagious. Saul's soldiers were frightened because Saul is terrified. David, the lonely shepherd boy, comes along and because of his faith and courage inspires others to trust in God. Then he says, 2 Chronicles 32, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. For there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they're just merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles for us. In the end, it's not so much that David was great, but that God, the God he serves, was great. Saul seems to focus on the size of the enemy rather than the size of his God. And I, I wrote this down. God always seems to give us enemies who are much greater than we are so that we fight, so that we do not fight in our, so that we fight in our weakness, trusting in God, not in ourselves, giving him the glory rather than taking the credit for ourselves. Let's land the plane. When we go out to fight the Lord's battles, we need to know God is not limited by the size of the army who fight in his name. In this case, it was one shepherd boy. You know, I was told by a pastor in Washington County that 80% of the people of Washington County don't attend church. We've got a great mission out there. 80% don't attend church. And he sends us out as part of the conquering army. We need to trust the living God. Second, God chooses to, chooses to, to uh, tends to choose the least likely candidate. Who is that? David and you and me. Think of Gideon. When, you know, I think when, when the angel said to Gideon, he called him valiant warrior, he probably looked around and said, who is he talking to? You know, 
that's the way God calls it. How about Moses in, in Exodus 4? What if they don't believe me or listen to me? God says, I'll give you some signs. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I, I, you know, I've never been good with words. I'm not now. And even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. God's answer, who makes the person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Or you hear or do not hear or see and do not see? It's the Lord. Now go. I will be with you as you speak. I will instruct you what to say. Moses, come back. Lord, please send anybody else. So he sent Aaron with him. God's grace, patience, and gentleness. Now, Jeremiah, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. Don't say I'm too young, the Lord says, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. The apostles! They were fishermen, a lot of them, no formal education, and they had the wrong accent. They changed the world. Paul the Apostle, you know, he had some things on his conscience. He really did. Today we'd say, no, I can't go. I've got some things to work through. What does he say? 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me will not prove Next, we should expect criticism. Moses had criticism from who? From his sister and his brother and the people. Jesus had criticism from the religious leaders. Paul had criticism from some jealous Christians, even judging his motives. Don't let it stop you. Fourth, you need to know, we need to know who God is. You know, when I was growing up, there was a book, I'll bet you Dick Papworth remembers this book, and, and Herb, Your God is Too Small, by J.B. Phillips, wasn't it? One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 40, 28. Have you ever heard? Have you ever never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. David knew who God was, and he acted upon it. Five. You don't have a whole lot of, you don't need a whole lot of resources. You know, I was in Alguno de Ustedes Son de Oaxaca. See, yeah, some, some people from Oaxaca. I was in Huatulco, went up to the top of the mountains, 9,000 feet from Huatulco down, down to the city of Oaxaca. I got up to the top uh, and, uh, and I didn't see a town. It was just there. But there was a church building there, had, had about 250 room for about 250 people there. And so when I got up there, I started talking to the guy, uh, guy and he told me what had happened up there. The town drunk of one of the towns around there, the town drunk got saved. And he got into a church and he got discipled. That sound familiar? Got discipled. And so for the next 40 years, he went from town to town, and he'd stay in the town until the church was, 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 was operating. He'd witness, he'd win people, he'd stay there, he'd named elders, and he'd move on to the next town. And then they would send people out. 
And when, when I got there, all he had to do was send out, send out a, a circular saying, there's someone here I want you to hear, and they'd all come. 250 pastors came. You know, what kind of resources did he have? He walked. He never got married. He just walked from town to town and stayed there. And it wasn't easy. I, I was sitting next to a guy who showed me the bullet that was still in his, in, in his leg and showed me where the bullet went through here and came out the back of his head. He was preaching when it happened. A guy walked in and started shooting. It wasn't easy. We don't need great resources. Six, both faith and lack of faith are contagious. We saw this in the story. Cynicism, grumbling, or griping are very contagious. But thank God, faith is contagious. And as we walk out in faith, the fear of others will fade away. It's, it's like what happened in the Israeli army. I'll finish with this. John Wesley said this. He said, catch on fire with enthusiasm and people will come for miles to watch you burn. Lord, thank you for these moments together. Lord, we know we have a great task in front of us, and the mission is possible, because you make it possible. You are a great God. You are the God of heaven's armies. You are a wonderful, powerful God that love us, and Lord, and has promised to be with us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.